Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we are going to talk about coronavirus. And before we do, I do want to say we're going to talk about coronavirus. I'm probably going to mention the word a couple dozen times in this video. It pains me to say this, but YouTube is very, very likely to demonetize this video regardless of what they have said in respect of their demonetization policies. And because they aren't reviewing these things for a while now, I would really appreciate it if you otherwise share this around for yourselves. Like it, subscribe to it, tell people that we exist out here because these kinds of topics are very likely to be demonetized. And that means not so much that it matters that we get money, but it means the algorithm YouTube doesn't get money. And that means that they are unlikely to share these things around. So if you like this stuff, if you like the content we have in virtual legality, you know, please do let us know, put a comment in, try to help us out with respect to the algorithm. And you know, let us know if we shouldn't be pursuing a different way to get these kinds of videos out there because it has become frustrating as part of this. Coronavirus is one of the biggest stories of the day. We aren't doing anything here in virtual legality to cause hysteria, to spread misinformation, to do any of those kinds of things. We are talking about what we always talk about in this space, which is the business and law of things. Today, we're going to talk about statutory structure and how language can be read too broadly. That language that was written for one purpose is now being used for another purpose because there is a a very human incentive and impulse to do something about bad acts that you see out there in the world and the problems that that causes when bad law makes bad precedent or when bad facts make that bad law. So we're going to talk about those things. If this is your first time in virtual legality, if you are seeing this because somehow this wound up getting spread around YouTube or elsewhere, you are under no obligation. And I'm not asking you to like and subscribe to this before you even hear me talk about these things. This isn't for you. But for others that are here regularly, any help that you could provide is very much appreciated because we are seeing a basic suppressed... Uh, viewership and subscription number here on YouTube because none of these videos are getting out because they're all viewed as not advertiser suitable, at least in the first instance, because we're talking about things in the news. With that all out of the way, let's talk about what I want to talk about today. And that is the nature of some of the reports that came out a couple of days ago that said the Department of Justice of the United States, the federal government, not any of the state governments, not the local ordinances or municipalities, were looking at whether or not they could start charging people as bioterrorists that are intentionally spreading the coronavirus. And I talked with a number of people on Twitter about this, a lot of good points. Uh, But what I want to talk about right now is how poor of a fit the current federal statutes that the Department of Justice would point you to for this specific premise actually is. And that poor fit is really part of the story for me, a lawyer, in trying to explain to folks exactly why, if you want to address something novel, you maybe have to come up with some new language. You actually have to look to the legislature or to a regulatory body if they have the control over the rules and regulations of the area in which you are seeking to prosecute, rather than just reinterpreting things that existed for other purposes. But if you aren't familiar with any of this story, we're going to actually look at the source material. We're going to look at the Department of Justice memo, one specific paragraph of that memo that talks about this, that says we are looking into whether or not we can uh, prosecute as bioterrorists those that intentionally spread this virus. In a memo to top Justice Department leaders, law enforcement agency chiefs and U.S. attorneys across the country, Deputy Attorney General Jeffrey Rosen said prosecutors and investigators could come across cases 
of purposeful exposure and infection of others with COVID-19. Because coronavirus appears to meet the statutory definition of a biological agent, such acts potentially could implicate the nation's terrorism-related statutes. Threats or attempts to use COVID-19 as a weapon against Americans will not be tolerated. Now, there's a whole lot to unpack, even just in that summary of what this letter says, not the least of which is that biological agent basically covers anything that could ever exist in nature or synthesized that could potentially cause someone disease. And so everything ever falls under that particular definition if the Department of Justice seeks to use it as such. But also whether or not the statutes that they even point to can talk about threats to Americans, most specifically with respect to their statutes on weapons of mass destruction, which they would have to use for most of this kind of analysis. Now, it should be noted that this story is actually distinct from the story that I've actually highlighted in the thumbnail to this video, in which a man accused of licking deodorants in a Missouri Walmart, love it, after asking who's afraid of the coronavirus, was charged with making a terroristic threat. And this is from the Business Insider article here. It says, a man who police accused of licking items in a Missouri Walmart, accused because he videotaped himself doing it, has been charged with making a terrorist threat. Cody Lee Fister, 26, was charged by the Warren County Prosecuting Attorney's Office with making the threat after police said he made a video of himself licking items in the Walmart store. Now, I will link this article in the description of this video, as I always do, so that you can read the source material yourself. But it's worth noting here that Missouri actually talks about a law that would apply to this offense in general. Now, we're not going to get into constitutional law. We're not going to talk about whether this statute could be challenged on First Amendment grounds. In general, I suspect it couldn't. There's a broad kind of authority given, especially to the states, to protect health and welfare. And there's going to be general understanding, especially in this circumstance, but just an interpretation of a law like this one, that if you go and you make a video of yourself that could have the tendency of scaring folks, then if it falls within the language of this statute, you're probably going to get in trouble, even if you have the First Amendment right to make whatever kind of speech or video that you otherwise want to make. We could talk about First Amendment. We could talk about exactly how much the scared quality of the building or the viewers of the video has to be reasonable. But that's not important for what we want to talk about right now, which is that Missouri had a statute on the books that would cover this broadly. It says a person commits the crime of making a terrorist threat if such person communicates a threat to cause an incident or condition involving danger to life, communicates a knowingly false report of an incident or condition involving danger to life, calling in bomb threats when you want to get out of your midterm, or knowingly causes a false belief or fear that an incident has occurred or that a condition exists involving danger to life. So I don't believe this gentleman necessarily had coronavirus when he took this video. The point here was that he made people nervous that if he did, he was infecting the whole store. And it says, if you knowingly cause a false belief that an incident has occurred or that a condition exists involving the danger to life with the purpose of frightening people, with the purpose of causing an evacuation or quarantine, or, and here's the important part in Missouri, with reckless disregard of the risk of causing that evacuation or quarantine or with criminal negligence. Now, every state is going to have slightly different standards for these various kinds of mens rea, the knowledge that you have to have in your brain to kind of trigger these criminal statutes. 
And because of that, I'm not going to get into the difference between recklessness and criminal criminal negligence. That's going to be very specific to Missouri. But it is implied here that criminal negligence, just based on the structure of the statute, is something less than reckless disregard, but still higher, higher than just kind of mere negligence. That, oh, if you've got COVID and you accidentally put your hand on some lettuce, that isn't the same as making a terroristic threat, even if you took a video of yourself doing it. But when you go about and you lick all of the deodorant in the Walmart, then we probably can get you on criminal negligence, if nothing else. Uh, And so this statute directly talks about this specific situation. And that makes it a good application of the law. Doesn't mean that the state will necessarily win. There's defenses that can be raised in those kinds of things. But it doesn't raise the same problem that I'm going to articulate right now with how the Department of Justice wants to use their federal authority to look at folks that specifically actually do have COVID and might go and make videos and and talk to people and and do things that would otherwise have the effect of of frightening folks. So let's take a look at that memo. I've pulled up this memo. This is from the U.S. Department of Justice, Office of the Deputy Attorney General. It's dated a couple of days ago. It's for the heads of law enforcement, litigating divisions, and United States attorneys. This is essentially a memo out to the entire structure of the Department of Justice and those folks that would be kind of dealing with these things on the front lines. And they talk about a lot of stuff and a lot of stuff that is not terribly objectionable. Fraud, healthcare fraud, uh, stealing things from hospitals, all these other kinds of Ponzi schemes and whatnot that are absolutely within the ambit of the Attorney General's office and the Department of Justice in general. But here's where I wanted to focus. It said, second, you may encounter criminal activity ranging from malicious hoaxes to threats targeting specific individuals or the general public to the purposeful exposure and infection of others with COVID-19. Because coronavirus appears to meet the statutory definition of a biological agent under 18 U.S.C. 178, such acts potentially could implicate the nation's terrorism-related statutes. Now, note the caution that even the deputy attorney general is using right here, right? As a lawyer, I emphasize these words when I read them in the sentence just now, but they should jump out at you whenever you're reading something like this from a government or other authority. And it says, such acts potentially, there's a weasel word, could, another weasel word, implicate the nation's terrorism-related statutes. Hey, look, we're about to give you some examples of some statutes that could apply, maybe, we don't know. But we want to put this paragraph in so that it gets publicized in places like Politico and various other news organizations that picked up on this uh, a couple of days ago. But it's worth noting that even when I analyze this, and I'm going to hopefully show you some of the flaws in this thinking and this approach, that even the deputy attorney general is saying, maybe, maybe this stuff applies. Good luck, law enforcement agents. Uh, We think maybe you could use some of this stuff. Uh, Don't watch virtual legality because Rick is going to say why all of these statutes probably don't apply in the way we are implying here, but that's okay because we want to get this paragraph in the memo. Now, before we kind of dive into all that, the first thing we want to dive into is what's a biological agent? So this is the definition that they point to. You see we're in 18 USC. You see it's chapter 10, biological weapons, and they want to say coronavirus, COVID-19 is a biological agent. And here, I'm going to 100% agree with them because let's take a look at the definition. The term biological agent means any microorganism, including but not limited to bacteria, viruses, fungi, rickettsii, or protozoa, apologies for the science pronunciations there, or infectious substance, or any naturally occurring bioengineered or synthesized component of any such microorganism or infectious substance, 
capable of causing death, disease, or other biological malfunction in a human, animal, plant, or other living organism. So if you break this down, as I've highlighted in yellow here, the term biological agent means any infectious substance capable of causing disease. Okay, well, I don't think I'm going to win an argument that COVID-19 doesn't fall under infectious substance capable of causing disease, but it's worth noting here the breadth of this federal statute, right? Whenever you have a definition this broad, you know that there's going to be other kind of restrictions placed on its use because otherwise the implications are too significant, right? Anybody that passes a cold, maybe anybody that has a cold might be subject to this statute if we just have you owning a a biological agent, you possessing it being something that is inherently illegal. So while they even add the weasel word appears to, because coronavirus appears to meet the statutory definition of biological agent here, even though they add that weasel word, there's really no possible argument that one could make that coronavirus isn't a biological agent. That's not where the discussion comes in. And it makes it interesting that they would even highlight it here because it is so obviously true because basically every disease ever is a biological agent. But then we start to see exactly what statutes they want to apply. They say, see, for example, section 175, development possession of a biological agent for use as a weapon. Now, this statute is interesting in and of itself. If you haven't kind of dived in to the United States code about biological weapons and terroristic threats, I don't know what kind of life you're leading, but there's some fun stuff here because as per usual, the statutes are written so broadly that they can create trouble when the Department of Justice or whomever tries to apply them to very specific circumstances. So let's take a look at the main offense here. We'll see that B doesn't actually work for what we're talking about here. So we want to focus on A. Whoever knowingly develops, produces, stockpiles, transfers, acquires, retains, or possesses, you got to love legal language verb lists, don't you? Any biological agent, toxin, or delivery system for use as a weapon or knowingly assists a foreign state or any organization to do so or attempts, threatens, or conspires to do the same shall be fined under this title or imprisoned for life or any term of years or both. There is extraterritorial federal jurisdiction over an offense under this section committed by or against a national of the United States. Now, let's break this down a little bit. Whoever knowingly, so you have to know that you have COVID, whoever knowingly develops, produces stockpiles, transfers, probably nothing that applies to somebody that just kind of finds themselves afflicted with coronavirus out in the wild, right? You probably didn't knowingly develop although there's an open question with some of the news reports we see about people going to coronavirus parties. Does that mean that you knowingly developed it? And does that put you under this statute? Is going to a coronavirus party, if you have the the belief that if you get it now before the health system is overrun, you've got a better chance of making it through. Obviously, that's not a belief that I think is terribly helpful to society. But if you have that belief, are you a federal criminal for going and acting on that belief by going to one of these silly parties? I don't know. If you knowingly develop coronavirus, the answer might be yes. But we are starting to get into the fact patterns that are maybe a little bit more on the borders of what we're talking about here. We're going to assume for purposes of this conversation that someone has just naturally found themselves afflicted with coronavirus. They got a positive test. They know they have it. And then they go into the Walmart and they lick this deodorant. It says, whoever knowingly acquires, retains, or possesses any biological agent. To me, 
it's very likely that possesses is where you would want to land on this. If you are trying to prosecute someone and you're a Department of Justice lawyer and you say, okay, we want to prosecute somebody that knew they had coronavirus, not the gentleman we just talked about, but that is otherwise licking things in the Walmart. And we want to say that they knowingly possessed a biological agent. Now, in terms of the structure of the sentence, you'll note one thing that jumps out to me as a lawyer, which is that the for use as a weapon is very important. Because if you otherwise possess any biological agent and you know that you do, if you have a cold, you shall be fined under this title or imprisoned for life. It is required under the statute to make sense that it needs to be used as a weapon. But as a lawyer, I look at this list and say, hmm, you know, an enterprising attorney could suggest that only the delivery system is required to be used as a weapon, right? We can read this list to say, if you possess a biological agent, a toxin, or a delivery system for use as a weapon, right? If we put the Romanets one before biological agent, two before toxin, and three before delivery system for use as a weapon, then for use as a weapon would only apply to that third category. And because of the way the commas are used here, because of the Oxford comma and some other kind of things, you could argue grammatically that this statute allows you to prosecute someone that just possesses any biological agent and that they shall be fined under this title or imprisoned for life. Now, to their credit, they're not making that claim here. Even in the parenthetical, it says development possession for use as a weapon. But it's always worthwhile to know in statutes where there's ambiguity because, hey, if I'm the government and I really want to make an example of someone, maybe I put forth the argument that for use as a weapon only applies to delivery system and we're only talking about a biological agent. So if you knowingly possess COVID, you shall be fined under this title or imprisoned for life. Obviously, with huge negative implications across the entire spectrum of disease management, health codes and everything else. But maybe if you're the government, you want to make an example of someone. Now, I don't necessarily think that's what's happening here. So what we wind up talking about is, okay, if you want to have for use as a weapon, as part of your condition here, did you possess it for use as a weapon? I would argue that you didn't. You were holding it because you have been afflicted with it. It wasn't your choice. Again, we can get into the case later, maybe in a different video, about that person that goes to a coronavirus party and then the person that goes to a coronavirus party specifically to lick things in a Walmart and say, yeah, okay, they're probably getting pretty close to a terrorist at that point. But if you just came down with this thing and you possess it, is it in your possession for use as a weapon when you go and you lick the Walmart items? I think reasonable minds can differ here, but my instinct is to say you don't possess it for use as a weapon. You're simply using it in that capacity, although we're going to get into whether or not it is in fact a weapon itself in the next statutory code that we're about to read. So the question becomes, does this apply to someone that just has coronavirus and goes and licks things in their Walmart? And I think we've got a lot of ambiguity here. And I think we always need to resist the impulse, even if you're working at the Department of Justice, of just using existing statutory code, which was clearly designed for something else. This was clearly designed for the James Bond villain that goes and breaks into a lab somewhere and gets all of the super flu bugs and now is looking to have it put into a delivery system for use as a weapon. And this isn't that. Section B, which you might otherwise be inclined to point to, says whoever knowingly possesses any biological agent of a type or in a quantity that is not reasonably justified for research and peaceful purposes shall be fined or imprisoned. But it also says in this subsection, specifically B, 
The terms biological agent do not encompass any biological agent that is in its naturally occurring environment. So COVID-19 in a human body is naturally occurring. It is not otherwise built for that purpose, as far as we know. And so because it is naturally occurring, B can't apply. And then we see the definition for use as a weapon includes development, production, transfer, acquisition, retention, or possession of any biological agent other than for prophylactic, protective, bona fide, or other peaceful purposes. So if you possess COVID and you weren't intending to have it operate as a weapon and you're otherwise trying to make a point of some kind, some political point, whatever it might be, that you're a raging idiot and you want to broadcast that on TikTok or wherever, it becomes a question of whether you have possessed COVID for use as a weapon. And I don't think it's as obvious as the Department of Justice would like it to be. That's why you see it say potentially and could, potentially could implicate, you know, maybe some of this stuff could apply. And then you see the rubber really hitting the road when they include use of a weapon involving a biological agent, which if you go to the specific statute here, is actually called use of weapons of mass destruction. And just in terms of kind of your intuitive impulse here, does a person licking deodorants or licking something else in a Walmart, are they using a weapon of mass destruction? Uh, it's not a great fit just in terms of natural language usage, but let's take a look at the definitions. A person who without lawful authority, so, you know, if you're ordered by the president, you can, uh, uses, threatens, or attempts or conspire to use a weapon of mass destruction. And we have to look at the definition of weapon of uh, mass destruction here to confirm that it fits into this. It says a weapon of mass destruction is any weapon involving a biological agent, toxin, or vector. Now, you can see here I've highlighted two different sections of this subsection here because it's interesting, right? The presence of the biological agent itself is not the definition for weapon of mass destruction. It is any weapon, small w, not otherwise defined, that involves a biological agent. So you got to think this through. Okay, the person goes, they have COVID, they go and they lick something at the Walmart. Is the person the weapon? That seems hard to kind of frame out in part of your charge. Is the deodorant the weapon? Is that a weapon involving a biological agent? Maybe. And so... You see here how, again, it's not a great fit for what we're talking about here because it contemplates that you will have developed something for weapon use, that you will have a weapon. When we talk about, you know, prohibiting use of weapons of mass destruction, we're talking about weapons. And the biological agent itself is not the weapon. Any weapon involving a biological agent, there's a different subject to this subsection. So there needs to be a weapon involved. Then we get into what it needs to be applied against, because if you're not familiar with the United States constitutional structure, it's important to note that when we talk about health, when we talk about uh, crimes against people, in general, those are to be protected as powers by the states, right? The United States is a federal government and the states have a lot of authority over these things. That's one of the reasons you see as part of this coronavirus outbreak that the governors of the states are the ones putting forth the lockdowns rather than the federal government, rather than the president, rather than martial law at a federal level. The states have this authority to protect the general welfare and health of their people. And the federal government doesn't have that same authority. So what you will see here when we are about to describe what the actual offense is under this statute is you will see the federal government trying to apply what we call in the law constitutional hooks 
which means that they try to reference a power that they have within the Constitution that they could otherwise prohibit and regulate these various activities. And what we will see here is that the most prominent hook is the regulation of interstate commerce. And if you're not familiar, if you haven't been to law school, if you haven't been through constitutional law classes, the United States Constitution has limited powers that are given to the legislature to do things. And one of those powers is the regulation of interstate commerce, which by virtue of hundreds of years of court precedent now, encompasses virtually everything that Congress would like to do in any capacity. And so they put this hook in for whatever they want to regulate, and we will see it applied right here. It says, a person who without lawful authority uses a weapon of mass destruction against a national of the United States while such national is outside of the United States. So that hook is that we have the right to defend our citizenry across our borders against any person or property within the United States. Okay, so that's where we're probably going to fall. Does this apply if you lick random things in the Walmart? And the mail or any facility of interstate or foreign commerce is used in furtherance of the offense. So the mail probably wasn't used here. But if you upload a video and you put it on TikTok or you put it on Twitch or wherever you're putting your videos, Instagram, probably the government can make the claim that the internet, by virtue of its very nature, is interstate. You put a video up, it was served to various places across various locations. If we actually go back and we look at that Business Insider article, there's a reference to the fact that Missouri received complaints from places in like the United Kingdom and Scotland and other folks in Europe, not just in Missouri, that were complaining about this specific activity. So it probably was using a facility of interstate or foreign commerce. Okay. Such property is used in interstate or foreign commerce. Any perpetrator travels in or causes another to travel in interstate or foreign commerce. It crosses state lines or the event or the offense or the results of the offense affect interstate or foreign commerce, which is the broad umbrella, right? What doesn't affect interstate or foreign commerce? Again, if you haven't been to a constitutional law class, the answer to that under current Supreme Court precedent is everything anywhere that you could ever elect to do affects interstate or foreign commerce. There's a very famous Supreme Court case called Wickard v. Filburn, which I have my issues with, which basically says, if I want to grow my own stuff, feed it to my own horses or whatever it was that they were feeding it to in that particular case, and I don't otherwise interact with anybody else on the planet Earth, that affects interstate or foreign commerce because if I didn't do those things, I would have had to have bought something in interstate commerce. And so effect is this broad, broad umbrella. So the fact that you lick deodorant means that somebody else somewhere could have ordered different deodorant across a different state line. And so you affect interstate commerce. But again, is it a weapon of mass destruction? Is it against a person or property? I guess it's probably against the deodorant. Such property is used in the offense results in the effect of interstate or foreign commerce. But you see how broad these things have to be read to get you to the place where somebody that fell with COVID-19 accidentally licking things in a Walmart because, to be honest, they are an asshole and they want to make them name for themselves on TikTok and, and on videos across the internet and what have you, that they should fall under these federal guidelines for the use of a weapon of mass destruction. That's why I wanted to make this video is to just highlight how tortured an interpretation of this is. And I think from a legitimate impulse, it's everybody's impulse that this guy deserves to be punished. But it's worthwhile to note that Missouri already has something on the books. 
It's worthwhile to note that if you find yourself in California, the California Health Code already has something on the books called intentional transmission of an infectious or communicable disease. Now, there are rules there. There are rules that govern exactly how that might be applied. Who knows what, whether a, a uh, interaction with someone else is voluntary or not. But the fact of the matter is, is that these states retain this authority to cover things like this for health and general welfare. And I always want to recommend to folks, even with the impulse to do something that, hey, we need to be able to exert more power over these idiots, that we want to retain the structure that we have, regardless of what structure that is. I'm in the United States. You might have a different structure in your country if you're watching this from uh, somewhere internationally, but you want to retain whatever structure you have and not just try to interpret its ambiguities for whatever you want to do at that moment in time. Because the problem is, if you start interpreting these de these definitions very broadly, if you start interpreting the definition of what it means to possess a biological agent, what it means to have it as used as a weapon, that you're possessing it for that use, what it means to use a weapon of mass destruction, what you will be setting is legal precedent that will be used in circumstances that are not these ones in a way that I think both you and I are very likely to find very detrimental to society and to the rule of law in general. So what I always recommend to people is absolutely, these guys deserve to be looked at by legal authorities, looked at under the rules that apply to them, looked at under the rules that the health code might otherwise provide in the very states that they locate themselves. And also to note that at the end of the day, a lot of this winds up having problems for these individuals in general, right? And so while I think it's useful to exert the authority of the law, to exert the authority of the government in various ways in a circumstance like this, we should always be reluctant to do so in a fashion that tortures the language. Because when you torture that language, you wind up with the rule of human beings rather than the rule of law. And sometimes, quite often in my opinion, but reasonable minds can differ, that rule of mankind winds up being more troublesome than the initial instinct to cover these types of acts under the rule of law. That's been virtual legality for today. If you like this, as I said at the top of this video, my bet is almost 99% chance that this is going to be demonetized. So please share it around. Tell folks that we are talking about these things in this space. We talked about all sorts of stuff this week, including the Earn It Act, Tom Nook's behavior in Animal Crossing, which is, you know, of equal import, of course, to the coronavirus and everything else happening in the world. But sometimes we just can't do serious statutory deep dives every episode of virtual legality. Otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. We very much appreciate everybody that joins us here in virtual legality. And if you otherwise listen to it on its podcast forum, thank you so much. If I could ask you to review it on whatever podcast forum that you otherwise find yourself on, uh, especially I am told that Apple iTunes is very useful for those reviews, I would appreciate that as well. Otherwise, I will catch you on the very next episode of virtual legality and have a safe and healthy weekend. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel.